So Krista and I are off on a new adventure for 2014. Uh, some of you may know that Krista and I celebrated our 10-year wedding anniversary back in January, um, which at Southbridge Community Church means that we were qualified to apply to become marriage mentors, kind of premarital counselors for couples that are uh, engaged to be married sometime in, in 2014, which is really exciting for me and a bit ironic, because when I started working at this church 17 years ago, I was 24 and single, and I did premarital counseling like all the time, and then the church was a lot smaller back then, and then somebody realized just how uh, dumb that was, and I got totally fired from that position, and somebody else did it, but but now, after 10 years of marriage, I'm finally qualified to step back into that role. And so Krista and I have been meeting together with a, um, two different couples in this early part of 2014 and just kind of getting to know them and talking through the realities of marriage and in general, trying to provide for them this perspective of from 10 years down the road, a little bit of wisdom, a little bit of experience that we've accumulated of what married life is really all about. And it's been totally, totally an amazing experience. We love uh, these two couples. They're both grounded and thoughtful and they're having really great conversations and we just feel great about you know where these relationships are at. And so we get together, and this is basically the exchange. We offer them 10 years worth of wisdom and perspective, and what they offer us is the opportunity for us to witness just this unbridled, unvarnished excitement about being married, which is just amazing. We get to we get to be in relationship with these people who are just exuding that air of, of young love. Not naive love, just young love. Just eagerly anticipating what it's going to be like, as best as they could prepare and, and anticipate it, what it's going to be like to be married. And it's refreshing and it's invigorating. And at some core level, it's spiritually illuminating to see before your eyes a living picture of the love of God. Uh, that's what this whole month is really all about. Um, as I'm sure was mentioned in each of our locations, we're in this series called Only God, which is sort of our time out moment every year to take some weeks and focus our attention back on reinvigorating our passionate love and devotion to God. And since the scriptures say that we love because he first loved us, our thought for the month of April was that if we could catch a fresh glimpse of the love of God, of just how passionately and intimately he loves us, that we could be filled with that love in a way that begins to spill out of our lives towards him and towards each other and, and towards the world. So if you were here last Sunday, uh, you heard Jeff Martins try to capture through the word pictures of the Bible the ways in which God sees us through the lenses of, of love. If you weren't here, Jeff talked at some level about how God sees us as his children. He sees 
in us, his likeness, his reflection, what he is like mirrored back to him. He, he sees us as these kind of little miracles running around that he absolutely admires and adores just in the same way that we adore our children. Jeff said that we were called, that we are God's masterpieces. These works of art that he has painstakingly and intricately labored over, that he's just created beautifully. We are, we are God's ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. We're God's Handel's Messiah. We're God's Taj Mahal. We're God's Romeo and Juliet. We're God's prized possession. The only thing in the world that God would and literally did give up absolutely everything in order to have for himself. But there's one more word picture. I mean, there's a lot more word pictures, but there's another word picture in the Bible that to me absolutely captures, it just describes so meaningfully to me the way in which God loves us. It, it's a word picture that emerges actually 800 years before Jesus was even born, a, a, a picture that was first penned, as far as I can tell, by the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5, where it says this, as a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you, Jerusalem. The builder being God, Jerusalem being representative of God's people, living in God's presence. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. I just love that language. As, as a groom rejoices over his bride, um, you, we, all of us together, each of us individually, we are the, we're the bride of God, you know, adorning ourselves, preparing ourselves, doing our makeup and our hair and trying on dresses and going to the gym and doing whatever it is that brides do in preparation for their wedding day. We are God's bride, preparing ourselves to be married to him. And God, looking at us, feels everything that a groom feels when he stands here at the front of the church and he sees his bride come through the back doors. When God looks at you, his eyes get all misty and he gets a lump in his throat and his heart starts pounding and, and there's this knot in his stomach. Being a groom is a very medical event. There's a lot of stuff that happens inside your body. But the, whatever the groom feels when he sees his bride, that's what God feels when he looks at us. It's a powerful image for me, I think, because for most of my life, my adult life, teenage life and adult life, I lived with this incredible uh, fear of commitment. Um, which I think could accurately be described as abject terror at the idea of being in a relationship. Um, I wasn't afraid of girls. I, was, I liked girls. I was attracted to girls. I wanted, I wanted to date 
girls, but there was something that happened inside of me the second dating somebody turned into a relationship. And the second we went from people who were dating to a couple, the moment we were a couple, there was something inside of me that just rebelled against the notion. And I had to quickly, as quickly as possible, find a way to get out of this relationship and so what I would do is I would in my head my brain would spin and I would run reasons to break up with this girl until something finally felt to me like it was a big enough reason to justify getting out of this relationship right and so you know whether she had man hands or she ate her peas one at a time or whatever it was it had to be a big enough reason to justify terminating the relationship and I remember Having a phone conversation with Krista, we had been dating about two months, just over two months. And we were talking on the phone, and I said to her the one day, I said, you know, I said, you really ought to be proud of yourself today. And she said, why is that? And I said, because normally for me, the first part of every relationship is spent trying to come up with a reason good enough to break up with the girl. And I've been doing that in our relationship, and I haven't yet been able to come up with a reason good enough to break up with you. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's romance. It, it's, the, it's just romantic is what it is. You don't understand. Um, so she started to laugh, of course. And I said, but that's not the good news. And she said, oh, great. What's the good news? I said, today, I actually started thinking of reasons that I'd want to keep you. And at that point, <laughs> she couldn't control it. She just burst out laughing. And she said, tell me that you never date girls that have a low self-esteem. And I said, I, I have. And it's gone horribly. Uh, but I lived, all that year that we dated, I lived with this terrible tension of knowing that I was falling in love with her and being increasingly uncomfortable with what that meant for my fear of commitment because I could see where this was going. In fact, I, I, I proposed to her and um, didn't feel great about it. Like I knew I wanted to marry her. I knew I should marry her. It was right to marry her. It's what I wanted to do with my life. And I felt terrible about proposing to her. And I was uncomfortable for our entire engagement. And Really, I only ever finally felt settled standing at the front of the church. And when I saw those doors open and I saw her begin to come down the aisle in that exact moment, my heart answered every question my head had ever asked. And I've never since that day ever once questioned whether or not I wanted to be in this relationship. It's been awesome. And that's what God feels when he looks at you. It's interesting to me, though, the reason I'm intrigued by this word picture is that not every instance or mention of us as God's bride and, and God as the groom, not every mention of that picture is actually positive in Scripture. In fact, right around the time that uh, Isaiah is writing his words about the bride and the groom and us and God and so on, another prophet by the name of Hosea is also writing about the same imagery. And in Hosea chapter 1 verse 2, it says this, When Yahweh began to speak through Hosea, Yahweh said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. 
For like an adulterous wife, this land and these people are guilty of unfaithfulness to Yahweh. And so he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. God comes to Hosea and he says, listen, I want you to marry that woman and your marriage is going to be symbolic of my relationship with my people. Now, I don't think what God said was go marry a promiscuous woman. In fact, even less so. God did definitely did not say go marry a prostitute. That's the tradition is that God said go marry a prostitute. And there's no way that God said go marry a prostitute because there is a word in Hebrew that refers to somebody who sells their body for sex and this is not the word. Uh, Gomer is not a professional prostitute. That's not what she does for a living. That translation is just absolutely incorrect. But it's not even promiscuous. It's not like... Uh, God said, go find like an easy girl and marry or whatever, uh, someone who sleeps around a lot. The word promiscuous uh, literally means to cheat on your spouse. You can't be promiscuous until you're married. So I think what happened was God said, listen, I want you to marry that woman and your marriage will be representative of my relationship with my people. And shortly after Hosea and Gomer were married and started a family together, she started cheating on him in this kind of serial way. There's one guy after the other, after the other, after the other, until eventually it got so bad, they're not, they, they eventually aren't even living together anymore. She has left their marital home, and she's gone to take up residence with one of these guys that she's been with. And it's in retrospect that Hosea looks back over his married life and he says, I see how this represents uh, the relationship between God and his people. It's as though God had said to him, Hosea, I want you to go and fall in love. I want you to just love this woman and feel what it's like to be loved by this woman. I want you to feel what it's like to fall into love. I want you to feel what it's like to get married and to worship the ground that this woman walks on. And then experience what it feels like for her to rip your heart right out of your chest and stomp on it on the ground. I want you to know the devastation and the anger and the confusion and the chaos and the humiliation and the shame that comes along with discovering that unbeknownst to you behind your back, you've been sharing your wife with other men. That at night, she sleeps in someone else's arms. Because God says, that's what I have to live with in my relationship with my wife, my people, the ones who were supposedly fully devoted to me, who committed that we would be together in richer and poor, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others till death do us part. And I live every day with the pain and the hurt of knowing what it feels like to be unloved, to be cheated on by the person that I love. See, what Israel was doing at the time 
was they were kind of continuing their relationship with God on one front. They were doing all the things that they were supposed to be doing to keep that relationship going, going to the temple and worshiping and bringing sacrifice, the whole nine yards. They were doing all of the stuff, just like when a spouse cheats. They keep, the at first, they keep everything going the way it was at home, and, and that's what Israel was doing. They were keeping it going, but there was no real love there. What they were doing when they were away from the temple, when they were away from God, God and from his presence and from worship is that they were pouring themselves into worshiping all of these other gods, all of these other idols. They were worshiping gods who promised them happiness and health and wealth and sex and success and fun and prosperity. And, uh, and in those days, you know, to worship the idols came with no demands. There were no commandments. There was no obligation. There was no commitment. You basically, you just worship the God in the way that God wants to be worshipped. And then the God gives you whatever it is that you were asking for. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. No strings attached. And Israel was trying to maintain this relationship with God and have all this other stuff going on on the side behind God's back. And it was ripping God's heart out to realize that his people weren't fully devoted to loving him. And truth be told, there are definitely seasons in my life where that is equally true of me as well and probably true of you. That those of us who are, you know, would say that we're followers of Jesus Christ, we go through these seasons where we, where we kind of, we keep the whole following Jesus thing going. You know, we still go to church and we worship and we read our Bible and we pray and we live in you know, community with other people who are following Jesus and we volunteer and we serve the poor. We just, we kind of keep all of that going. But whenever we're away from that, we pursue the stuff that we really actually want in life. We pursue the stuff that, that really has our heart whether it's sex or money or approval or recognition or achievement or uh, family or marriage or kids or you know, relationships in general, friendships, success, just religiosity, whatever it is. We do this whole religion thing, but truth be told, our hearts are really more interested in this stuff, it's, it's the stuff that you would use to finish the sentence, life is only worth living if, or I am only worthwhile if. That's the stuff we daydream about. That's the stuff that we get out of bed for. That's the stuff that we pray for. That's the stuff that we spend our time and our money on. That's the stuff that we talk about all the time. That's the stuff that we really get passionate about. That's the stuff that we really pursue. That's the stuff that we're terrified that we'll never get to experience. That's the stuff that really has our heart. We make bad decisions with our lives because we're trying to have our cake of this God stuff and eat it too with all this other stuff. 
We end up making sinful choices and hurtful choices and stuff that hurts yourself and stuff that hurts other people and stuff that hurts relationships and stuff that hurts your life and stuff that hurts your spirit and stuff that hurts your soul and your emotional life. And we just make all these destructive decisions. We make these, these decisions that we're later ashamed of or you know, we hate ourselves for or we carry all this guilt over, all this stuff that makes us feel unloved, all this stuff the Bible calls sin. And we end up feeling guilty and ashamed and far from God and unlovable. And God ends up feeling unloved and brokenhearted. The New Testament used the language, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve God. Don't pain him. Don't torture him. Don't hurt him with the hurt of feeling unloved because you're too busy chasing everything else to really pour your life into being fully devoted to him. And it breaks his heart. And I've talked to enough of you who've been cheated on by your spouses to know exactly how we feel like responding in that exact moment to the one who's cheated on us. And the amazing thing about the story of Hosea and Gomer and the amazing thing about the story of God and us is that God responds in a completely different way. In Hosea chapter 2, Hosea describes his own response. And sometimes it sounds like he's talking about him and Gomer. And sometimes it sounds like he's talking about God and Israel. And it's all kind of interwoven because they both overlap and so on. But in Hosea chapter 2 verse 2, he's talking to his kids and he says, Rebuke your mother. Rebuke her. For she's not my wife and I am not her husband. He's not rejecting her. He's not saying, you know what, that's it, we're through. I'm not your husband anymore. He's just describing reality. This is not a marriage. What we're living through right now is not a marriage. She doesn't even live with me for Pete's sakes. He says, let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. He means the, the makeup that she puts on and the perfume that she wears. In, in those days, you don't put perfume on your body. You wear it in a satchel between your breasts. And he's saying, tell her to stop getting all dressed up and going out to the clubs, trolling for men to take her home. Otherwise, he says, I will strip her naked and I will make her as bare as on the day she was born. It sounds like Hosea is mad, and I'm sure that he is. But it sounds like in the verse, he says, listen, if she's not going to stop behaving like this, then I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to humiliate her in public. I'm going to tear her down like he's going to take a Louisville slugger to both headlights and carve her, his name in her leather seats, you know, the old Carrie Underwood song, he's, he's, it sounds like he's angry and he's going to get revenge and that is not at all what Hosea is saying. First of all, in ancient Israel, the punishment for, adul for adultery was death. And Hosea is saying, first and foremost, I do not want her punished the way the law says she ought to be punished. He's sparing her in mercy. What he's doing is he is allowing her to experience the fruit of her self-destructive choices. He's actually loving her enough to let her go 
and experience the pain and the hurt that is at, and the humiliation and the shame that is at the end of going down the path that she's opted to go down. But that doesn't mean that he's basically hands off in verse five to seven. She said, I'll go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. Therefore, Hosea says, I'll block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them and not find them. And then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for I was better off then than now. Hosea says, I'm going to, at the same time, he says, I'm going to set up a, a protection around her. I'm going, to, I'm going to protect her from really hurting herself or others or really doing serious damage so that hopefully one day when she arrives at the edge of this journey of self-destruction, she'll come to her senses and say, my life was so much better when I was living at home in love with my husband. And she'll return to me. And God says that's exactly the way that it is with me and people who, who insist on wandering away from me, who insist on loving other stuff more than me, caring about other stuff more than me, wanting other stuff more than me, who insist on making sinful decisions in order to go and get that stuff. God says, this is how I respond. My heart is a heart of love that loves you enough to let you go, that loves you enough to hit rock bottom if you have to. I will protect you and I'll put a hedge around around you and I will try and, and curb you, but I will love you enough to let you go with the hope that one day you will love me enough to come back. The New Testament says that God disciplines those that he loves, that he disciplines us by allowing us to experience the consequences of our choices so that we can be trained by We can grow and we can mature by the choice that we've made and the consequence that we've lived through it. And the Bible says that the one who allows themselves to be trained by their negative experiences will, ex will experience a harvest, it says, of righteousness and peace. So the word righteousness basically means loving, faithful, devotion, and commitment to God. And peace is love and joy and hope and healing and abundance and everything that Jesus means when he says you'll have life until it overflows. God says, I will, I will let you go in order to let you grow so that one day you'll return to me in faithful love, in commitment and joy, and I can pour into you the life that you always wanted. But it goes further than that. God doesn't just love us enough to let us go. God loves us enough to win us back. See, an amazing thing happens in Hosea's story with Gomer. She leaves him to go and be with these other men and so on. And in the course of her 
pursuing that stuff, she gets herself into a whole mess of trouble. The text doesn't tell us how or why or what it is, but she just, she just gets herself really messed up to the point where she can't, she can't get out of it anymore. She can't rescue herself from it anymore. It seems that she's probably uh, in some significant debt up to her eyeballs and she just doesn't have the cash to free herself. And so she finds herself trapped in the situation where she's stuck and she really has nowhere else to go and, and nothing that she can do. And right at that moment, in Hosea 3 verse 1, Yahweh says to Hosea, go and show your love to your wife again. Even though she's loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as Yahweh loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. God says to Hosea, go and get her back. And Hosea goes and figures out how much money she owes and to whom she owes money and all and at a significant cost to himself, he goes, he pays off all of her debt. And he frees her from this lifestyle that she got trapped in. And he bring her, brings her back home. And they live together again as husband and wife. And God says, that is exactly, that is exactly my heart for those who have wandered away from me, for those who have sinned against me. That is exactly my heart. That is exactly what I intend to do for them. In Hosea chapter two, this is God's words out of the message translation. He says this, and now here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna start all over again. I'm taking her back out into the wilderness where we had our first date and I'll court her I'll give her bouquets of roses. I'll turn Heartbreak Alley into acres of hope. And she'll respond like she did as a young girl those days when, when she was fresh out of Egypt. He's talking about back in the Exodus when he rescued Israel from slavery. And at that time, this is God's message still, you'll address me as dear husband. And then I'll marry you for good. Forever, I'll marry you true and proper in love and tenderness. Yes, I'll marry you and will neither leave you nor let you go. And you will know me in intimacy and passion. You will know me, God, for who I really am. God says, I am coming after you. You know, we live these lives filled with guilt filled with shame, feeling unlovable, hating ourselves for our own choices and assume that God feels exactly that way about us. There was a, uh, a reformer 500 years ago who said that we all as followers of Jesus are snow-covered pieces of dung. That is profoundly not true. When God looks at you, he doesn't think of you as some piece of crap that Jesus has done a little bit of work to, to clean up a little bit. God loves you and he looks at you as the bride-to-be, as the one that he always wanted to be with, as the one that he wants to marry and to be with forever. You know, the most um, regular description of eternity in the scriptures is of a wedding reception that lasts for eternity and what makes it heaven is that there's feasting and dancing and music and no speeches. 
But God says, I love you and I don't care how far you've wandered and I don't care what you've done and I don't care how, what a mess you've made of it and I don't care how much you've screwed up your life and I don't care how unfaithful you've been. I'm coming for you and I want to start again. I want to start from scratch. I want to win you back. I want to have you to myself. I want to hold on to you and never let you leave ever again and I want you to love me and know me intimately and passionately and be with me for all of eternity. That is how I love you. I love you like a groom who loves his bride no matter what. I want to ask the band to come to the stage because I don't want to close this message in prayer and, and, and pray to God that he would, you know, teach us how to love him or to be loved by him or whatever. I, I want us to close off this experience in a completely different way. I don't want us to talk to God. I want us to sit and open our hearts and let God speak to us. Let God speak over us with the words of the song that the band is going to play right now. And as they do, I want you to hear the voice of God wooing you and winning you back, speaking tenderly to you in love and inviting you to be his all over again. <laughs>